Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Techspansive. I am Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. Well, this week we had uh, Apple's WWDC event, conference. This is their uh, event they hold every summer, typically, for their developer community, where they highlight coming features in their next operating system. So we had news around iOS 15, iPad OS 15, and uh, Mac OS that's coming called Monterey. Uh, And we really had uh, a lot of announcements this week from Apple about where they're uh, they're taking things. When you look at uh, iOS 15, uh, we saw some uh, new features coming like SharePlay, which essentially allow you to turn your app into a shared experience. Uh, it also shows up in FaceTime and allows you to um, uh, essentially share a scheduled video call. So it feels like they are uh, addressing needs of users, but also uh, doing it in the wake of all of these shared video platforms like Zoom and, and others to make it very easy to, to share a link and join a video call. Apple wants those type of events happening on the, uh, the iPhone. And so you're seeing that show up. Yeah, it was um, kind of interesting to see them pay so much attention to FaceTime uh, after all these years. Uh, I saw one interesting comment on Twitter that, uh, and I had not remembered this, that apparently when Steve Jobs introduced FaceTime, he had promised uh, it would be compatible with, with all kinds of things. And of course, it wound up not being compatible with anything. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in part because of that, Apple missed out a bit on all of the video chat mania that we saw during the pandemic uh, that saw the astronomical rise of Zoom uh, and also saw Microsoft uh, invest heavily in Teams, also saw strong growth there. Google uh, adding you know, tons of features into Google Meet and kind of getting its video chat house uh, more in order. Uh, so uh, the big news, I think, is that uh, uh, in, in an age where Apple has really been consolidating more and more onto its own platforms, uh, the rare outreach to users on Android and Windows in, uh, in, in allowing those folks to, uh, to join a, uh, a FaceTime call, really, really for the first time. Uh, and they're going to do that via a web app. So after so much discussion in the past year about how different companies are using web apps to get onto the iPhone and iPad and try to get around Apple's 30% uh, cut um, or get around other app store rules, uh, it's interesting to see Apple play a little bit of turnabout and turn to uh, a, a web app um, on, on other platforms, uh, probably for different reasons, uh, but, uh, but, but it also allows them to, uh, to extend it to multiple platforms um, uh, with, with, without having to write native applications. SharePlay will also allow you in FaceTime to bring in music videos and, and movies into calls and sync. So uh, that takes advantage of the trend we've seen from others where you can do these kind of shared movie nights and, and shared experiences. Uh, you know, one of the, the beauties of, of uh, Apple and their iOS ecosystem is, of course, their 
their iMessage type platform where you have groups that can easily uh, communicate in, in real time. And it looks like Apple's working to bring some of those similar features to some of their other communication platforms. I think Ross, you bring up a great point. Had, uh, had uh, FaceTime been tied into all of these other services at the start of the pandemic, you could have easily used your iPhone as a secondary screen or even as your primary video screen for, for some of these calls. And then you could have kept using your, your, uh, you know, your notebook or your desktop for other aspects of it. So a really interesting missed opportunity for them and maybe one that they'll, they'll rectify. And, and iMessage uh, still very much uh, main, you know, stays a, an Apple ecosystem uh, kind, of, kind of experience. Uh, they're building on that with something that they're calling shared with you. Uh, this is going to be a central repository for all kinds of things that people are sending you through uh, iMessage. Uh, so you can easily recall them and they don't get lost in the shuffle. Uh, speaking of uh, things getting lost in the shuffle, uh, you know, it's funny, and again, speaking about little Pandora's boxes that uh, were, were opened at the dawn of certain technologies, uh, the war on, on notifications, or, or perhaps more, more accurately, the wrestling match uh, with notifications continues, right? On one hand, they are undeniably useful. You know, you definitely want to know when someone you care about wants to get in touch with you or if there's uh, an important status update. On the other hand, they have been um, radically abused by all kinds of different apps. So uh, one of the approaches to curtailing these things has been the do not disturb feature that we've seen on, uh, on various kinds of devices. Apple now looking to customize that with a uh, different kinds of focus modes, uh, whether you want to concentrate on getting work done or, uh, or, or playing a game uh, or, or even just, you know, having some, some quiet time, uh, you'll be able to customize the, uh, the, the kinds of things that uh, the iPhone prioritizes. Um, that, that notion of focus and, and quiet also uh, played into one of the few uh, Apple Watch announcements that we, we saw at WWDC, uh, where they're sort of uh, stepping up uh, their use of the Breathe app um, in order to, uh, in, in order to um, em emphasize the, the value of mindfulness and, and uh, meditation uh, in addition to adding exercise support for yoga uh, and, uh, and Pilates. So that's, that's most of what we saw on the, um, on the watch front. Uh, but uh, of course, the watch has also been a, uh, a key part of Apple's uh, health uh, messaging and, and uh, a key focus point for their fitness efforts, uh, really the heart of their Fitness Plus uh, subscription product. Uh, and uh, there were a number of announcements, uh, other announcements around health. Uh, this idea that um, Apple is now going to integrate with various electronic medical records providers, and you'll be able to share uh, information with your doctor uh, securely. Uh, the ability for caretakers or caregivers of, uh, of, of children and, and elderly parents uh, to gain access to the, uh, the health information uh, that the iPhone is generating. Uh, of course, given that, uh, you know, given in the case of other adults that, that they opt in, 
Uh, and uh, in one of the many uh, machine learning AI related announcements uh, that we saw at WWDC, uh, Apple doing work on measuring uh, people's like likeliness to, uh, to fall, uh, a huge problem um, among elderly populations. And uh, you know, one of the things the iPhone is going to be able to do is to uh, continually track the risk uh, of, uh, of someone falling based on a tremendous amount of information gathered around your, your gait, uh, including such uh, information as, for example, when, as you walk, both feet are on the, on the ground at the same time uh, versus only one foot, uh, really an incredible uh, wealth of data uh, that they have access to. And, uh, and, and so we, we see uh, Apple stepping up that health message uh, and in doing so really playing up, this is really the dividend as, as you've alluded many times, Sean, uh, to their, uh, you know, their, their business model and emphasis on, on privacy, not just uh, differentiating from Google and, and Facebook, uh, but building that level of trust uh, that, uh, you know, where customers are going to feel more comfortable uh, participating in programs like this. And I think Apple is trying to find that uh, very fine line between building in great functionality like like what they're doing with the health app where you can share your information with loved ones or medical providers at the same time, keeping it a, a very uh, secure and safe environment where you know at all times where your data is and, and uh, how it's being used. And we saw them introduce other privacy settings as well to re really uh, fine tune that message. So they're really trying to find that right balance between create an environment that's easily shareable and builds off the ecosystem that they have, this, this broad base of users and, and takes full advantage of the connectivity that is provided by connected devices and, and digitization and sensorization broadly, uh, but at the same time, keeping it a very secure device. Uh, we also saw in the health app, the ability to monitor trends over time, which I think has become a, a popular aspect of these health apps. You can look at things over time. And we also saw the ability to analyze your lab data in the health app. So in, in some ways, as I've talked about in the past, and we've discussed on this podcast, Apple wants to be much more than just a device manufacturer when it comes to your health information. And, and here they look a lot like an advisor. It looks like they're providing in some ways, uh, you know, medical, uh, medical information and medical advice to help you understand what those lab results might mean. I, I think they're also creating an environment where uh, it isn't that you're just uploading information to your electronic medical records, but you're actually downloading over time information. So that will flow mm -hmm. both ways. So you'll be able to go to your device, whether it's your, your phone or maybe, you know, your iPad or, or your watch even, and you can get your real time uh, view of, of the lab results when they come in and they'll, they'll explain them to you. So I think there's some really interesting opportunities that they're building in here to be bi-directional when it comes to, to health information. I also thought it was interesting to see some of these announcements, uh, you know, clearly unrelated, clearly in the works for some time, 
but coming a bit on the heels of uh, the announcement that Google made at I.O. Uh, around the capability that they're developing to diagnose various or at least, you know, try to clue you in on uh, potential medical conditions uh, based on photos that, um, that, that you can take of your skin, uh, you know, particularly when it comes to discolorations or, or moles or, or things like that. So, uh, and of course, over the years, we've seen phones uh, being used to diagnose all kinds of uh, medical conditions in uh, developing uh, economies simply by, you know, taking uh, detailed photos of, of retinas uh, and, and eyes and things like that. So really fascinating to see the evolution of the smartphone, not only as a tool for capturing uh, medical conditions, you know, that, um, uh, that, that uh, you know, and, 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 uh, and, and offering a potential diagnosis or, or at least something to talk to your doctor about, uh, but also helping ordinary people understand uh, what, what the implications of them might, uh, might be. Uh, also speaking of trust and privacy, uh, we saw uh, a little bit of news around Apple's uh, continued use of uh, ultra-wideband uh, to serve as a, a digital key uh, in, in your iPhone. And to uh, uh, they, again, mentioned the partnerships that they're forming with car manufacturers to, uh, to allow your iPhone to unlock your car uh, just as you, as you step up to it. You don't even have to take it out of your pocket. Uh, as well as uh, the keys to your house, um, working with, with a number of uh, lock uh, producers in, in order to enable that functionality. Uh, and in the digital realm, uh, moving forward with uh, yet more privacy protection measures, including the, uh, the blocking of what are called tracking pixels in, uh, in email. So uh, just, you know, real interesting contrast, again, with what we're seeing in the Google Android world where Google introduced this uh, privacy checkbox center uh, kind of feature for Android 12, uh, where uh, in both cases, they're trying to just you know, give you more information. Uh, but uh, Google's approach has always been about trying to expose choices uh, to allow you to kind of opt out. Whereas with Apple, you know, if in their own services, they're always striving to avoid uh, collecting information in the first place. And in fact, there was some attention given to Siri now doing many more uh, commands on device uh, without having to send your, your voice uh, to the cloud. That's something uh, I know we've talked about in the podcast, I, I think a while back ago. Uh, and, um, and in addition to, uh, you know, just, just, letting you know about these, uh, these techniques that, that digital marketers use uh, to, to track you uh, and uh, bringing them to the forefront and, uh, and, and making it you know, easy for you to opt out. If, if for some reason you want to opt in, you can still do that. Uh, but uh, you know, clearly we, we've seen that the overwhelming majority of people uh, when offered uh, the choice will, uh, will choose to opt out. 
all of these keys that uh, you mentioned, not just your car keys, but also hotel room keys or, right. or home keys are all going to show up in a wallet, which you might be using if you're an iOS user today. You might be putting your uh, plane tickets there or other uh, coupons, other digital information. Uh, they're also announced that they're working with TSA to enable mm -hmm. airport security check-ins using essentially your digital ID. So you can upload a photo of your of your ID, driver's license, you know, driver's yeah, state license. ID or driver's license, yeah, to uh, to wallet, and then it will be an uh, essentially an authorized uh, ID that you could use as a, uh, a legitimate form of identification at places like the airport. Uh, so it, I, I think that type of feature is really interesting. We haven't seen as much about uh, a kind of digital identification information in the U.S. as we have in Europe. Europe is is definitely pushing uh, a, a digital uh, ID uh, platform. Estonia and others have have kind of moved in that direction long ago. So it will be really interesting to see. Um, you know, and this all comes kind of in the shadows of, of last week's EU announcements around uh, digital ID. So a lot more coming to Wallet uh, for iOS as they start to build out the ability to, to connect with other things. Kind of somewhat related to that, we also saw the announcement that Siri would be moving to third-party devices so that you could uh, control third-party devices through Siri. You'll, you'll need to have those connected through a HomePod or some other device. And, and you know, arguably, this also helps drive the HomePod market, which has been much slower than I think Apple anticipated. And it's caused them to have to pivot somewhat in that market as they've brought out lower-priced options. Uh, bringing out greater home connectivity and home control could help drive that that HomePod market as well. Yeah, uh, and they also announced that you're going to be able to use uh, HomePod as kind of stereo speakers uh, for your your Apple TV. Uh, but uh, I, I thought it was really interesting the way they phrased uh, the incorporation of the driver's license or state ID. They they discussed it as the last step, uh, or really the last thing you needed in order to move away from your wallet. Um, so, you know, you've already got photos on your phone, you've got, uh, the ability to pay, you know, through, through Apple pay, uh, and, uh, Sean, speaking of, uh, you know, propping up other devices, I think it's kind of funny that, you know, Apple recently introduced air tags, uh, and what are two of the things that people most want to track are most likely to misplace are, uh, their keys and their wallet. Uh, and Apple is uh, doing everything it can to uh, to turn those in, into relics of the past. So I don't know if there's going to be much left to track uh, with AirTags if uh, if they continue to make progress along these fronts. Yeah, that's a funny observation there, Ross. <laughs> I know looking at my kids, uh, they don't go anywhere without their phones, and they would love to have their phones be their wallet to be able to control everything. Sure. Uh, the, the, the one caveat with that is that... Uh, I find kids to be uh, less, um, shall we say, safe with their devices, you know, constantly breaking screens and, and breaking devices. So if all of a sudden they were locked out of their car in their house because they smashed ah. their, their phone and uh, right. you know, that 
seems to probably not happen as much to adults. Obviously devices have become more durable. The class faces have become more durable, but a lot, a lot there. In, uh, in, in the more productivity focused devices that in, in Apple's portfolio, uh, the company showed off some, uh, some updates to, to the iPad, uh, really looking to fine tune the multitasking interface. That was my main takeaway. Uh, a couple of years ago, a couple of uh, OS uh, iterations ago, they introduced things like split screen and slide over to produce a more touch-friendly variation on windowing uh, that we've had in uh, desktop operating systems for many years. And you activated this with these gestures that, uh, while very slick, were not necessarily very intuitive. Uh, so now they have added new controls uh, into Windows to clue people in on, uh, on multitasking. I wonder if they were finding that uh, people were underutilizing it because they just didn't know it was there or that it was possible. And of course, uh, you know, the better or easier it is to, to do multitasking, the more likely it is uh, or the bigger incentive it is for you to buy a, a bigger iPad. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that can, uh, can help drive uh, some revenue. Uh, and, uh, and, and a feature that's going to work across the iPad and Mac called universal control. Uh, and it's kind of like the idea of second screen on uh, steroids. You know, this idea that I can just take an iPad that is propped up on a stand or a smart cover or something, and just as I bring it close to, to a Mac, uh, I can now use the keyboard and trackpad of the mouse to seamlessly move over to the iPad uh, and, uh, and control apps uh, on, on that iPad. It also works across Macs. So if you happen to have, say, a laptop and, a, and an iMac, a MacBook and an iMac, uh, and you have them next to each other, uh, the implementation is pretty cool as you move the cursor to the border of the screen, you sort of see this highlight that signals that, hey, you're about to move over onto the other computer. Uh, and then once you cross that chasm, so to speak, uh, you know, it becomes a pretty seamless process back and forth. So, uh, so again, the kind of business hook there is, uh, this is probably the most literal example of uh, Apple products working well together that we've we've seen in some time uh, and uh, raising the bar on simply being able to, uh, for example, use an iPad as a, as a, to extend your Mac display, uh, which is something that, that they've had uh, for, for a while with a feature called, called Sidecar. Apple also introduced uh, Translate, which had been uh, previously introduced to the iOS 15. I, I mean, to uh, iOS um, they are now rolling it out to the iPad. And uh, speaking of interoperability across devices, they announced that it will uh, be available uh, essentially across all of their um, services. So it'll be a system-wide, such as the photo app and, and other things where you can do real-time translation. So uh, and I thought that was an interesting move to get uh, the devices to to be more interoperable with all of the information that's available out there. One, one of the things we found out about uh, the new Mac OS uh, Monterey is that some of the more 
media processing and computationally intensive features that they're working on, such as uh, very high level details in, in their revised uh, maps application, uh, a feature, a fascinating feature actually called live text uh, that allows you to select things like restaurant names and ingredients off, off labels and things in, in photos. Um, these things, uh, unlimited uh, dictation, uh, you know, for, for apps. Uh, previously, there, there were limits on how long you could uh, uh, dictate uh, into an app. Uh, these, uh, these features will be coming only to Macs that are powered by Apple's M1 chip. Uh, and again, that's not surprising. Uh, Apple is clearly optimizing for its uh, silicon uh, across iPhone, iPad, and Mac. Uh, and uh, if you have an Intel-based Mac, you will not be able to take advantage of these features. So we've already pretty much seen the bottom fall out uh, of the market for Intel-based Macs, uh, you know, particularly in the second-hand market. And uh, you know, th this is just um, bound to <laughs> accelerate that depreciation in, in value. Uh, and uh, it just shows that Apple is really wasting no time uh, in terms of this uh, transition. It would not surprise me at all if, uh, just as was the case in the Intel transition, uh, they beat their targets uh, in terms of whatever they've laid out two years uh, in order to, to, complete, uh, to complete the transition. So uh, it, it's, it's clear that if you want all the goodies that Apple is coming out with, for the Mac, uh, you, you need to buy one with, uh, with one of their chips. Uh, in related news, Adobe this week uh, announced that it had developed Mac native versions of many of its applications, such as Photoshop and Lightroom uh, for the M1 based Macs. And uh, big surprise, uh, are touting enormous performance improvements, uh, up to 90% uh, overall improvements in some cases and some tasks uh, being accelerated far in advance of that. So uh, it's a discussion for another time, but uh, Apple is clearly killing it uh, with, uh, with these M1 Macs and, and the performance that they're getting out of them. Uh, and uh, the Wintel, you know, Wintel world. Uh, Microsoft really doesn't have a, a great response uh, in the Windows world for it right now, but uh, we'll see what happens in a few weeks on the 24th when Microsoft is due to announce uh, details around the next major release of Windows, uh, supposed to be pretty major announcement. So we'll see how far that goes. That probably wraps up all of our Apple news. A lot of uh, Apple news coming out of this year's WWDC. In, in other news, and it does relate to a lot of what we've been talking about in the podcast. In recent weeks, we're seeing a number of cloud gaming announcements, Google finally launching Stadia on Chromecast with Google TV on uh, June 23rd, more than uh, eight months after the launch of the device. And then uh, on Thursday, Microsoft announced that it would be expanding its Xbox Game Pass subscription service to many more screens, and including uh, third-party smart TV. So this is something we've been debating on the podcast for a while. Uh, we saw it coming out of uh, out of CES, where you had companies like LG announcing that cloud gaming services like NVIDIA's GeForce Now would be available natively on the TV. I felt like it was only a matter of time before 
you would start to see um, the, the same thing come for, for Xbox and PlayStation. They have to think about what it means to be uh, a cloud-based gaming service, and we're seeing Xbox make announcements in that direction this week. And, and the gaming services, uh, adding them to all these smart TVs and external boxes, it's a little bit of a different proposition than just adding the latest video service like HBO Max or Peacock or, or what have you. Uh, I mean, there there's always rights and payments to be negotiated. Uh, but here, uh, there, there's a little bit more of a technical challenge in that uh, in order for these these services to really shine, uh, you're really going to want to have very high quality Wi-Fi uh, in the home. So, you know, if you're Samsung or LG or Sony, uh, it may push you or it may push, uh, push you to urge your customers to upgrade uh, in order to take advantage of one of the newer Wi-Fi uh, services, such as uh, Wi-Fi standards like Wi-Fi 6 or, or Wi-Fi 6E. Uh, and, uh, and of course, the other thing is the controller. Uh, and, uh, you know, years ago, we saw Roku try to turn its, um, its device into kind of a casual gaming device. We saw Amazon also try it. Uh, we've also seen Apple do it with Apple TV. So they've all dabbled in it. Uh, but uh, none of them have really been able to attract uh, the kind of immersive experiences that we see with these cloud gaming uh, options from Microsoft, uh, Google, and NVIDIA. So, uh, and to really take advantage of those, you're, you're really gonna want a, uh, a controller. So um, interesting implications in terms of whether these companies start uh, bundling controllers or you know, soft bundling them or offering special deals or incentives, uh, perhaps uh, you know, with a, a trial to one of these uh, streaming game uh, services. And, uh, and it'll also be interesting to see how, if at all, it shifts the balance of power among some of these uh, TV box makers like, like Roku, which has been on such a ride and has such a large uh, installed base, not, not just with their boxes, but empowering uh, the interface uh, of, uh, of many of the more popular TVs in um, in in, uh, in North America, so uh, so you know it's an opportunity for both the streaming providers uh, and uh, and the box providers, uh, and it could you know if they can pull it off, it, it could really greatly expand the market for a number of these stream, streaming services. Microsoft also acknowledging that uh, it's going to be releasing a device specifically for. Uh, for streaming, uh, Xbox uh, Game Pass, which includes its, its streaming service. Such a device should not be very expensive uh, and really has the potential to significantly undercut the Xbox. So, uh, so we're you know, clearly seeing Microsoft uh, be willing to cannibalize sales of, uh, of its console hardware in order to build, uh, to build a recurring revenue model uh, and access a far larger installed base of devices uh, than they'll ever be able to get to selling Xboxes. 
it's a natural move for Microsoft, obviously, because they are very focused on cloud in other domains as well. And that's probably what's caused them to move here more quickly than, say, Sony, that doesn't have a, a suite of other services and offerings that they're that they're offering through the cloud, per se, or certainly a cloud service in and of itself in the form of, of Azure. So it's a, it's a natural move. It's a timely move. It's a move that uh, they, they needed to make now. And I think all gaming platforms need to think about making because it's the direction that, uh, that we're moving to. And when there's so much competition from different gaming services, you need to be on every device. And that's mm-hmm. what uh, Microsoft's trying to do here. Uh, that's probably a good place to end this week's podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Techspansive. Again, I am Sean Dubrovac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks for listening.